welcome to the Fat Emperor podcast. I'm your host, Ivor Cummins. Hey all, great podcast today. We're going to be back to nutrition. In fact, the best nutrition and away from the other viral issue. So I have Paul Saladino, MD, back on today and we're going to talk about meats. Do they give you cancer or are they superfoods? And especially we're going to talk about organ meats. So great to see you again, Paul. Hey, thanks for having me on, Ivor. It's always a pleasure, my friend. Ah, same here, yeah. And we were talking at our last uh, viral discussion a couple of weeks back about your appearance in Joe Rogan, which is a big one. <laughs> Super exciting. I mean, it was, it was really fun to go on Joe's podcast. He's a real fan of animal-based diets, which is something that we're going to talk about today. And I know he's benefited from it enormously in his own life. And I mean, there's, it's just such a big platform that my hope is that that episode, which is now exclusively on Spotify, will influence a lot of people and in a positive way. And incidentally, he texted me a few weeks later after he interviewed John Mackey, who is the guy who founded Whole Foods here in the United States. And John Mackey, I think, sold it to Amazon, but is a vegan. And for whatever reason, Whole Foods has become kind of plant-based in their ideology. And the podcast with Joe Rogan and John Mackey was mostly about John Mackey's thoughts on capitalism and economies. But toward the end of the podcast, John Mackey started trying to talk about the benefits of a plant-based diet. And Joe, in his wisdom, I think having learned from me and you and other people, uh, was able to say, oh no, John, those are all false claims you're making. And so it was amazing that, that he was able to put uh, a plant-based advocate in his place on his podcast and really dispel some of the myths. And there are so many myths that we can talk about today about meat. Uh, there are myths about benefits of plant-based diets and there are myths about potential harm of animal foods. So that was really cool to see Joe defending this ancestral diet of humans. Yeah, and I think Joe, in fairness to him as well, he kind he knows this long term. But then, if he has people like you on and goes through the detail, he benefits from all of the science and the backup, and then he can be even more assured when he has someone like that on. But yeah, there's so many myths, and I mean, the most cliched one, the most absurd one, was a couple of years ago the WHO, and we have we have other challenges now with that body at the moment, obviously. Uh, but the WHO came out basically saying that meat kind of is a carcinogen, mostly processed meat, but also kind of sneering at real ancestral red meats. And it was based on lots of studies. But when you go through them, they're all junk studies, associations with like a 1.08 hazard ratio and anything less than two is meaningless. But they were happy to come out based on junk science and, and state that they actually spent the time. So what, what's wrong with them? It was such a crazy thing, Ivor. So that happened in 2015. It was the IARC report. So the International Association for Research on Cancer report. And then there was, they made the decision and they published it in 2015. And then in 2018, the real details of how they came to that decision came out. So who knows why it took them three years to actually show their work, quote unquote. But the 2015 decision, as you're saying, I believe was saying that processed meat was a class 2A carcinogen and, and non-processed red meat was a class 2B, or the recommendation was class 2A versus class 2B, um, which just has to do with the strength of the evidence, But when you, which is absurd, because when you look at how they arrived at that decision, and David Clurfield, who, has been, who was on that committee, has written about this. 
Um, I can maybe pull up uh, uh, something that he's written in the screen share in a moment, but he talked about how it all went down. And a lot of the committee was actually vegetarians who didn't disclose their, their biases. And they had, I believe, over 400 studies that might give some indication of connections between meat, both processed and unprocessed and cancer. Well, we don't really care about processed red meat and cancer studies because no humans should be eating processed red meat. Let's talk about fresh meat, put the processed red meat stuff aside. Like why are you eating processed red meat? But if you just look at the non-processed red meat studies, there were hundreds and they whittled it down to 14 studies, I believe. It was either 14 or 15 studies. So they excluded probably over 200 or 300 studies for whatever reason. And the studies they looked at were entirely observational. There were no interventional studies that they actually considered to make this decision about the connection between red meat and cancer. And there are many animal studies and there are interventional studies in humans that suggest that red meat is not inflammatory, that there's really no mechanistic basis by which red meat would cause cancer in the intestines. And so they just excluded all that. They just said, oh, that's not valuable. We don't need to think about that. Let's just look at observational studies. And so with 14 considered for their decision, you might think that the majority of those studies would show an association between red meat and cancer, but they didn't. I think now I, I, I'm gonna get this number slightly wrong. I think it was 14 studies and I believe eight of the 14 showed no association between red meat and cancer. And of the six that were remaining, Five, the association between red meat and cancer was not statistically significant. That is, either the p-value was too high, the confidence interval crossed one. And so what you were left with for this IARC, this WHO decision, that was proclamation, was that one out of 14 studies actually showed a statistically significant association between red meat consumption and cancer. And if you look at that one study, it was done in Loma Linda, California. It was done in a community of Seventh-day Adventists who, if the listeners are not familiar with, are a religious sect that shuns red meat. They shun all meat. And so in a religious group that shuns red meat, do we think that possibly the people that are eating more red meat might also be doing other rebellious things like drinking alcohol or having other unhealthy behaviors? This is a community in which the ethos is red meat is bad for you. And I've done previous podcasts with Gary Fetke in which we talked about this long and questionable history of the Seventh-day Adventists and their original uh, inception in the early 1900s uh, connected with Harvey Kellogg and this, this real intention to quell human sexual desire. And it's actually kind of a funny story in retrospect thinking, oh, the nutrients in red meat and organs are so good for humans that they give us our healthy, beautiful libido. <laughs> but in, this, in, you know, in the atmosphere of temperance and uh, concerns about uh, drunkenness in the early 1900s and you know, all of this sort of religious fervor, they thought we figured out a way to help humans become less carnal. We're gonna give them lots of processed grains and we're going to remove the red meat and organs. So if you want to quell your sex drive, just eat cornflakes. Harvey Kellogg solved it for you. Anyway, that's the history in a nutshell of the Seventh-day Adventist movement. And that is, the, that is a group of people that lives in Southern California. And that's the group where the connection between red meat and cancer was studied. And if you actually dig into that study, what you'll find is that in the people who had uh, this, this connection between red meat and cancer, there was also a higher incidence of obesity and insulin resistance. And as we know, 
observational studies really can't tease all this out. So is it possible that the people who are eating more red meat also happened to be more rebellious and also looked like they were more obese and more insulin resistant? Absolutely. And that's what you see in the study. But the investigators only made the association between red meat and cancer. And there's actually a stronger association between the obesity and the insulin resistance and the cancer mm -hmm. incidence. So, you know, pulling back out to 15,000 feet, what we remember here is, wait a minute, the WHO decision, the reason that everyone thinks red meat causes cancer is because of a decision based on the, um, the sort of uh, the proclamation or the, the conjoined um, consensus of this group of people who met in France in, in under lock and key, the majority of which were vegetarians who didn't disclose their bias. They excluded the majority of the studies. The studies they did include were observational. The majority of those studies didn't show an association between red meat and cancer. And the one study that showed a statistically significant association is probably confounded by what we might call unhealthy user bias. So when you realize that that is the reason that we think red meat causes cancer, it's absurd. And this is, again, this is the type of stuff that's parroted by people by John Mackey in the vegan community saying red meat causes cancer, but nobody understands how shaky that foundation is. And like I said, there are many studies that, that suggest the mechanism just isn't there. And there are many studies that show the reverse, uh, that, that red meat is not associated with cancer in any way, shape or form, especially if you go to Asian communities. Yeah. And in a way where it's great to explain it, that the whole thing is built on sand, but you know, if you look at the entirety of the science and all the studies, it's unquestionable, but that meat is an ancestral human evolutionary food. Now, it doesn't guarantee it's going to make you live forever. You know, paleo and eating what our distant ancestors ate is a much safer diet inherently because it's how we evolved. It doesn't mean it's magical, but the suggestion that meat is in any way negative as a food is it's just inherently absurd. And if you look at the mechanistic, the associational, uh, and even the RCTs, there are some RCTs on meat, but they were very disappointed with them because they didn't show a problem. If anything, they showed a benefit. So those RCTs, like I say, was quietly ignored uh, and the animal studies. Yeah. So they ignore the real science because quite honest, like a lot of science in the last 20, 30 years, they set out with a goal. Uh, they know what they're looking for in advance. They're not unbiased. There's a reason all these studies are done. And mostly when it's meat, people who are going after that topic, they know what they're looking for. That meat's a problem because of the environment, because of cow belches, because of just vegetarian and veganism, which is a very powerful lobby group. They're highly ideological and motivated to get into positions in nutrition bodies and scientific panels where they'll get to do the science. It's a reality. And we know Loma Linda and all, and then the, the Adventists. Yeah, you interviewed Gary Fetka and Belinda. I also did in Majorca. I went through the whole story of how enormous they've become, like non-profit, religious-based corporations selling grains. The biggest food corporation possibly in Australia is this Adventist-owned company, and they get tax-free because they're a religion as well as a corporation. And they plow their money into propaganda. And they're buying hospitals, apparently, in America and training centers for medical people so they can get their message out to a new generation of medical people. So all of this is behind the scenes, all this enormous bias and ideology. So we're going to fix it today. So meat 
Yeah, meat just to me is is a superfood uh, without overstepping the bounds. It's a superfood because of its nutrient density. All of the healthy fats, you know, iron, other minerals, uh, all the protein, complete proteins. You know, we're eating basically what we're made of. So it's perfectly compatible. There's just so many reasons that meat is essentially a superfood. And if you take away meat and your plane crash and you don't get access to meat, you know, you see the problems if people are isolated for a couple of months only eating plant foods. If they don't have supplements and they don't have air-shipped plant foods with all the different proteins sent in from around the world, the fancy plant diet, if they just have to really forage on plant foods, they get weaker and weaker. And we even saw, now this is macabre, but you know the plane crash in the Andes where sadly the guys had to partake of the deceased to survive? Uh, I remember from being very young hearing that story and the doctors who found them after months just were shocked at their health and they couldn't understand it. And then the story came out. They admitted, you know, (laughs) now that's macabre. I maybe shouldn't include that one. Well, I mean, this is a true story. It happened. This is the story of Nando Parado and alive and it's been documented many times. And look, if you're in a tragic plane crash and people have died, like, you know, they're, they're in the Andes, they're stranded in the mountains. It's an amazing story. And so just so your listeners know, I mean, to, it offends our delicate sensibilities, but these are their comrades who have died and, and they, you know, he talks about it in the book. They, what they just, they agonized over this, but they're about to die. <laughs> and there are these bodies of humans on ice. Now, neither of us is recommending in any way, shape or form millions of miles, like, you know, cannibalism. But if you have a dead human body on ice right there, what did they do to survive? They ended up eating them and they felt horrible about it. But I'm pretty sure that those deceased members, I believe it was the um, uh, a rugby team or, or something, mm. you know, I, I'm sure, you know, if, if I were on a plane flight and, you know, with my family or my friends or my community and the plane flight crashed in the mountains and I died, I would, you know, from the dead, I would say, please eat my body. I don't need it anymore. You know, it's going to be frozen in the ice and, you know, a, a wolf or a polar bear or something else is going to eat it, or it's going to, it's going to decay eventually. So please, eat. I'm sure that the people who had died would have said to their friends, Hey, look, I had my life. You can eat my body, but it is an illustration that these are the foods that nourish humans and they end up being very healthy in the end. Yeah. And you know, one of the biggest religions in the world that I think of it, the Catholic religion is all around, you know, Jesus and eating his body, drinking his blood. So all the symbolism is there too for survival, but that's the key for survival. I would want my family, anyone connected to me to survive at any cost almost once no one is harmed and that would certainly include surviving in that manner uh, and not just pointlessly dying so there's something almost honorable about it it's almost honoring the dead to to try and make the humans who are left survive and we've survived for so long now over millions of years through ice ages terrible times you know but to get back to the meat though it was just it was an illustration that the doctors were fascinated that they were apparently in great health and macarb, though it was, you know, meat, meat is almost a complete food. Uh, I would say it's actually pretty much complete. Not to be anti-plant foods, I'm not. But if you eat meat properly and the absence of sugars and seed oils and grains, which can cause you to have a lot of problems, as we know, 
it's a pretty complete food and it's highly nutrient dense. So it seems that the carnivores around the world, uh, they're, they're thriving. All the examples I know are thriving. And what's more, have also fixed issues that have been long-term problems for them and resolved their health issues and are thriving across the board. That's a general truth, isn't it? I know a couple of people like that. <laughs> I'm say. one of them. But yeah, and, and let's just take this moment to clarify that when you say meat, we're not just talking about muscle meat. We're talking about organ meat because uh, it's my, and I believe your strong opinion that when you say meat contains all the nutrients, there's a really interesting nuance here, which is why, you know, I'm interested in, in organs and eating nose to tail that if you just eat the muscle meat, you get a lot of great stuff. You'll get B6 and B12 and iron, but it's when you add in the organs, when you add in things like heart and liver and spleen and pancreas or, or even more exotic organs uh, like brain or collagenous tissues or bone marrow or you know other organs that you start to really complete the picture. That's when everything comes together. And we see that in nature, you know, animals that are carnivorous or omnivorous eat the whole animal. They don't just eat the backstrap or the most tender cut of meat. And this has really been lost in our culture as westernized humans. In other cultures, Asian cultures or you know, some of the South American cultures, they still eat the organs and it's not considered to be taboo or gross. But for us as Westerners, uh, at least in the United States, we don't really want to eat the organs. I mean, over there in Ireland, I know you, you guys have things like blood pudding or haggis or, you know, there's, there, there are things that do include organs, but man, in, in our general fare, we don't want to think about organs, but there's so many unique nutrients in these foods. Um, and before we go on to that, I just want to share some of those articles I have. Is that okay? Oh yeah. Go for it. Shoot. Yeah. So this is an article people can see by David Clurfield. He was one of the people on this WHO panel. Uh, he'll talk about the 22 members of the working group. They're all self-nominated. <laughs> Many had spent most of their careers studying the relationship of meat or other dietary factors in cancer. And as he said, many of them were vegetarian. <laughs> um, the committee relied yeah. exclusively upon observational studies. And he'll, he'll talk about it in this, um, you know, in this thing, how it actually went down. And you can see his reasoning and how dismayed he was that, that this was the decision they made. And then if you look at some of the studies that were left out, you'll find some pretty striking things. So for instance, this is a study that was probably left out, which is just a very well-known epidemiology study. And again, it's observational, but if you go over to Asia where there's no real unhealthy user bias or healthy user bias in the same way toward red meat, because red meat has been thought of as associated with affluence, you can look at you know, 112,000 uh, men and 884,000 women and the pooled analysis did not provide evidence of a higher risk of mortality for total meat intake. Uh, and they provided an inverse association with red meat, poultry, and fish and seafood. And get this, red meat was associated inversely with cardiovascular disease in men and with cancer mortality in women in Asian countries. So that's a huge study in Asia that was conveniently ignored. But let's look at, you know, a couple of mechanistic or at least even interventional studies. And again, this is in animals, but Oh, here's beef tallow, which is derived generally from the suet. Um, at Hardened Soil, we make a fire starter product with beef tallow in it. 
This increased apoptosis and decreased aberrant crypt foci formation relative to our uh, nemesis uh, polyunsaturated fats in soybean oil in the rat colon. So there's an interventional study in animals showing that if you give rats tallow from suet, that decreased the formation of precancerous lesions relative to soybean oil. Soybean oil actually increased the formation of those lesions. Well, there's an interventional study in animals suggesting that uh, an animal fat actually does the reverse of uh, causing cancer. That's striking. And this yeah. is one of my favorite ones. I don't know if you've seen this one, Ivor. The effects of meat, oh, yes. beef, chicken, and bacon on rat colon carcinogenesis. And what they found was actually uh, that, that the, the bacon-fed rats, it was protective. <laughs> and they say the results suggest that in rats, beef does not promote the growth of aberrant crypt foci, the same acronym from the previous study. Chicken does not protect against colon carcinogenesis and a bacon-based diet appeared to protect against carcinogenesis, perhaps because bacon contained 5% sodium chloride, increased the rat's water intake. They couldn't say why, but pork actually protected those rats against colon cancer. So, I mean, this is the type of stuff that was widely ignored. If people have questions about meat and cancer, this is one of the best reviews that I've seen. Um, and they actually talk about domestic mechanistic evidence and how weak it is for heme and heme iron uh, triggering cancers. So the working group cited compounds such as N-nitroso compounds, heterocyclic amines, and heme iron as uh, causing cancer. This is the mechanistic basis. But when you look at the evidence, they're, they're, the evidence from in vitro studies utilize conditions that are not necessarily relevant for a normal dietary intake, do not provide sufficient evidence. A lot of the studies done in animals um, tested for the promotion of precancerous conditions utilizing diets low in calcium, high in fat, contained with exaggerations of heme exposure that in many instances represented intakes that were orders of magnitude above the normal dietary consumption of red meat. And then we're talking orders of magnitude, that's 10 to 100x, not 2x. Um, clinical evidence, and this is the coolest part, suggests that the type of N-nitroso compounds found after ingestion of red meat in humans consists mainly of nitrosyl iron and nitrosothiols, products that have profoundly different chemistries from certain N-nitroso species, which have been found to be cancer-promoting, tumorigenic, through the formation of DNA adducts. So, I mean, here, it's all right there. This is crazy. Anytime a vegan or a plant-based rhetoric promoter or anyone, in the, even an omnivore, says red meat causes cancer through heme iron or N-nitroso compounds, you can kind of say, wait a minute, I thought those compounds in humans were this nitrosyl iron, nitrosyl thiols, and it's not the same N-nitroso compounds that have been found to promote cancer growth in animals. So there's really not even a mechanism there. And why would there would be? We've been eating nose to tail animal meat and organs for our entire evolution. So it doesn't make any sense. Absolutely agreed. No question about it, uh, Paul. And again, you could say I'm biased, but I'm not actually carnivore per se. And I came through all my beliefs from studying the science because I like to know the truth. I don't really have a bias. I just ended up in a place that some people don't like. Therefore, they accuse bias. But that's ridiculous. Uh, but also we have TMAO, the whole TMAO scare. And you can see that came out of the vegetarian universities as well. And it's completely absurd. And a couple of years ago, they did a study, an RCT on women, menopausal, postmenopausal women. So not an associational. And they actually gave them 
uh, I think taurine in such huge amounts that they got their TMAO levels in their blood up a f an order of magnitude, 10 times normal, and maintained them for six months. And they didn't show a single shimmer, the slightest change in any cardiovascular uh, lipids, ratios, or a range of inflammatory markers. So 10 times the TMAO level uh, enforced caused nothing. And yet they try and maintain the other guys. If your TMAO is up 10% because it may be associated with eating meat, it associates with a higher blah, blah, blah. But TMAO levels associate are directly the result of kidney disease, which is kind of diabetes. So all they're seeing is an association. More diabetic people, higher TMAO in their blood. Of course it links to heart disease, but they try and link it back to meat. But th this is, it's kind of scientific fraud. And deep down, they know what they're doing. The best I can say for these people is they've got a cognitive dissonance where they're subconsciously biasing rather than actively falsifying. But it's still bad. Still bad. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'll pull up a couple here. So this has been known forever. Diabetes associated with higher TMAO levels in the plasma, yeah. probably because there's an enzyme in the liver called FMO3 that's inducible by hyperinsulinemia. And then, I mean, this is a paper that came out a while ago and these authors are just saying, I mean, there's a lot of fancy words here, but uh, assessment of causal direction between gut uh, microbiota dependent metabolites, that's TMAO and cardiometabolic health, a bi-directional Mendelian randomization analysis. And what they come to the finding out here is that it's reverse causality. Our Mendelian yeah. randomization support that type two diabetes and kidney disease increase TMAO levels and observational evidence for cardiovascular diseases may be due to confounding or reverse causality, which is basically just fancy words for, hey, when you have diabetes or kidney disease, your TMAO goes up. And that could also, the, your, your diabetes or your kidney disease could be causing your cardiovascular disease. That is called reverse causality. And almost everyone accepts this now. The great irony of this, Ivor, is that when I was on the doctor's TV show in January, there was another vegan cardiologist who will remain nameless because he's so shameful. And he, he said, I'm a world expert on TMAO. Do not challenge me on TMAO. And of course, on the doctors, there were six doctors debating me and I couldn't get a word in edgewise. I just thought it was so ironic that this, this vegan doctor wanted to puff himself up and bloviate about the fact that he was a world expert on TMAO when in fact, there's no real harm from TMAO. And while we're on this, I think let's just hit them all. Um, the, the, the last one or the other one that people think of is new 5GC. Have you seen... Yeah. Uh, the plant-based people say, well, there's new 5GC. There's this unique sialic acid in red meat and, and that's causing cancer in humans. And again, what are your thoughts on that, Ivor? Because I can, I'll share some stuff, but it's similarly just silly. Yeah, that's the, isn't it a, a sugar molecule relating to, you can get it from the meat, maybe from the glycogen or something. I went through it once uh, and I spent about as long as, as I did TMAO where I found the menopausal women's RCT and I found a kidney transplant paper for the TMAO where high TMAO people, when they got a kidney transplant, they suddenly had normal TMAO. So that, that just clinched it. It was coming from their diseased kidneys. But new GC, more of the same. I can't remember the details, but... It was just more of the same associational. And you can feel the research teams 
keening and searching and striving to find something that can be negative about meat. You can just sense it as you read the paper. They are dripping with it. They're not interested in this new GC. They're interested in fingering or framing in any way they can meet. That's the goal. You can sense it. And, and when they do that, yeah, it's like the zeitgeist is meat is bad. Therefore, you're, you're going along with the status quo. We all know meat is bad and, and we're just trying to prove it and prove it and prove yeah. it. And so it's so silly. Um, so yeah, this is a study I showed quickly while you were talking. I don't know if this is the exact one you were talking about, but you can see no increase in colon cancer risk following induction with new 5GC bearing rabbit anti-T cell IgG in recipients of kidney transplants. Again, it's a mouthful, huge number of patients, 38,000 who received um, new 5GC in rabbit serum as they're getting a kidney transplant. So they're giving people tons and tons of new 5GC as part of this kidney transplantation protocol that included polyclonal rabbit immunoglobulins and it elicits an immune response against new 5GC, no increase in colon cancer. Again, meat not connected with colon cancer. And then, you know, what's so cool is I found this one while I was writing my book, um, the fact that uh, new 5GC antibodies are, are, are rare, but ferrets, so ferrets are a species that don't have new 5GC, uh, ferrets, martens, and their relatives, but that eat other species that do have new 5GC because that's really the thing here. And what you see if you read this paper, the absence of new 5GC and the presence of anti-new 5GC antibodies in humans and evolutionary perspective is that, well, if you look at ferrets and martens, they're eating animals that have new 5GC and ferrets and martens don't have new 5GC. It's analogous to humans eating cows or deer well, ferrets and martens aren't dying of colon cancer everywhere, right? There's all these models out there of, uh, of the, I thought that was so interesting that it's a species that's lost new 5GC. In humans, we have other sialic acids, new 5AC, et cetera. But yeah. the ferrets will eat animals that have new 5GC and they don't get colon cancer. It's all just so silly. And then, it you know, I could show you, I don't know, it'll take me a little while to find it, but there are, there are actually epidemiology studies, and I sent these to Joe uh, Rogan in an email because he was asking for studies. There's studies that show that the rates of colon cancer are actually higher in vegetarians in some observational studies. And so the whole thing is just really absurd. But I'm glad we could cover TMAO and new 5GC because I get asked about that a lot. Yeah, they're good. They're good myths to blow away. And it to me, it's all just junk science. And it only takes a couple of minutes in the paper to realize bias it, it screams out at me now but i'm quite sensitive to it but it's absurd so and there's also the other studies as well where they had doctors who were um vegetarian to your early point about healthy user bias if they restricted it to medical people there was no harm in meat or even benefits uh because they took out the socioeconomic and the behavioral factor so we see it again and again and the sent uh, the people who live to over a hundred in like uh, i think it was ok okinawa uh, almost exclusively they were omnivore uh, and they had no uh, vegetarian even though there are quite a few a lot of vegetarian people they had none in the uh, 100 years or older bracket so that again surprised them they were kind of surprised but w we wouldn't be surprised yeah you'll find that data in this paper nutrition for the japanese elderly mm. and all that will find the reference and uh, you know, and, and read through it. But yes, in this paper, they found that of the centenarians in Okinawa, they all were omnivores. Yeah, 
of course, because that's the natural optimum human diet uh, or carnivore even, but but certainly not plant based. So coming back then to the yeah, I've had more focus on organ meats in the last year because I had slipped. I started off eight years ago on the low carb diet, learned all about the huge value in nutrient dense meats and began to eat more organ meats. And then over the years, I let it slip a little. So in the last year, what I've been doing is trying to get back into it. My wife is making uh, pâtés now, and I've made some terrines, which is like a really coarse pâté, and I prefer the texture. Um, and I also, in a restaurant a few miles from where I live, there's one of the few restaurants, to your point, that they don't really do organ meats anymore, but they do lamb's kidneys in cream. And they're a strong flavor, you know, and some people find the flavor difficult because we've been weaned off it. But I'm beginning to access these organ meats again, and it's for the range of nutrients. Like, you know, meat, fatty meat particularly, not muscle meat. Of course, I wouldn't just eat muscle meat. I ate fatty cuts and gristle and, and that variety. Uh, but for nutrients and to cover the full range, the organ meats, you even want to eat multiple different types of organ meats, ideally, because I, when I went through the data, they have varying degrees of varying nutrients. So to cover yourself, you actually want diversity in organ meats, not just diversity in meats. Hey guys, just a quick note to tell you at the end of this podcast, I have a short story for you on New Zealand, sheep and organ meats. So hopefully you can hang on at the end for that. Thank you. And imagine that an animal has a heart and a liver and kidneys and the spleen and a pancreas and a stomach and an intestine and a brain. And yeah, there's a diversity, you know, you open an animal up, it's not just seven livers, right? But yeah, to your point, we can get into all those unique organs and the nutrients. But I found this one just that I was mentioning, this is Epic Oxford. Um, and I'll just read a brief conclusion and then we'll move on. The incidence of colorectal cancer was higher in vegetarians than the meat eaters. <laughs> Yeah. So again, it's just observational study, guys, for what it's worth, just that not all epidemiology even shows, you know, that vegetarians avoid colon cancer. So the absurdity, I'm pretty sure that the IARC didn't consider that one. But to your point, Ivor, when I think about the organs, because I think about this a lot with, with heart and soil and what we're doing with these supplements is that the, you know, the, um, that there are unique nutrients in the organs and we can just start with the vitamins and minerals. So for instance, if you are just eating animal meat and say plants, where do you get your bioavailable vitamin A? Well, if you're eating eggs, you'll get some retinoic acid from egg yolks. But I suspect that a lot of people are nutrient deficient, are, are sort of low level vitamin A deficiency because beta carotene in plant foods is not converted that well to retinoic acid in the human body. And there's even some studies that suggest that isomers of beta carotene breakdown might block vitamin A receptors. So if you're getting all your vitamin A from carrots, quote unquote, you both have to eat way more vitamin A from plants, plant vitamin A, than you would from animals. And I think the conversion is like 19,000 to one. Um, if you're even, you know, so like 19,000 units of of uh, beta carotene is equal to one bioactive unit of retinoic acid. So 
Liver is really the powerhouse of vitamin A. Kidneys are a great source as well. Egg yolks are good too. And in a way, egg yolks are kind of eating nose to tail, but retinoic acid and vitamin A are just the tip of the iceberg. And I will just mention here that the liver is not a filter. It doesn't store toxins like people think it does. It processes those toxins through phase one and phase two detoxification systems for export in the urine or the feces. This is, it doesn't store, your liver doesn't just hold on to heavy metals and pesticides. It, it moves them out of the body. And because it's such an enzymatic powerhouse to do that, it is full of nutrients that are required for those biochemical reactions. Vitamin A is rich in the liver. And again, vitamin A toxicity from eating cow's liver is very, I've never seen a documented case of that. Cow's liver is 20 to 100,000 times less rich in vitamin A uh, than polar bear liver, which is kind of this wives tale. So for most people, I would not worry about vitamin A toxicity eating, you know, ounces of liver every day. And I anecdotally in myself and people I've worked with, I know people who have eaten a pound of liver a day for weeks or half a pound a day and had vitamin A levels that were completely normal in their body. So this notion that you could get vitamin A toxicity over consuming a few ounces of liver or an ounce of liver per day is just silly. But beyond vitamin A, the question I always ask people is where do you get your riboflavin? And that's a difficult question to answer if you're not eating liver or heart. Now for a lot of people, methylation reactions around the MTHFR enzyme are really important or they're, they're disordered. Myself, I have an MTHFR polymorphism. I'm homozygous for the 677C to T polymorphism. But what's so fascinating about MTHFR and the conversion of uh, one form of folate into methylfolate is that that enzyme, MTHFR, has an allosteric binding site for riboflavin. And that means that if you have enough riboflavin, you can take a, quote, broken MTHFR like mine that functions slowly and make it function just as fast as normally. So I don't have to supplement with methylfolate, which is another compound that is found in liver that's not found in, in muscle meat. But I don't have to supplement with methylfolate with an MTHFR polymorphism because I get enough riboflavin from heart and liver. And so that's the question is where are you getting your riboflavin from? The amount of riboflavin in muscle meat is, is moderate, but heart and liver are much better. And I think a lot of people, and I see this repeatedly, Ivor, with my clients, people I've worked with over the years, if they're only eating muscle meat, you'll see the homocysteine bump. And the homocysteine is what gets converted to methionine when 5-methylfolate is used with B6 and B12 in that sort of methylation reaction. So if homocysteine is above 8, in my opinion, you don't have enough folate or riboflavin. And usually it's a riboflavin deficiency. People add back in liver and they do great because they get more folate and more riboflavin. And the list goes on and on. I mean, choline, biotin, B6, pantothenic acid, um, zinc and copper. Copper balances zinc. There's compounds in our intestines called metallothionine proteins. And if you over supplement with zinc, which I think is happening more and more these days in the COVID pandemic, people just hear, I need zinc, I need zinc. And they're taking 50 or hundred milligrams of zinc. And you don't balance that with copper, like would have happened in our ancestors when we were eating liver, you're going to get zinc, you're going to get copper deficient. And copper deficiency can manifest just like B12 deficiency clinically. You get sort of posterior column signs, balance issues. You can get all sorts of problems. It's, you know, it's not a good thing to get copper deficient. You don't want to do that. You don't have to worry about copper excess if you're getting enough zinc because those metallothionine proteins in your intestines balance it. The human body is elegantly designed to eat animals from nose to tail.
It's, it just yeah. works so well. And the list goes on. I mean, there's zinc, copper, manganese, selenium, heme iron. Um, and then this is just liver I'm talking about right now. And then there are, there's a whole category of things that I think are really fascinating, which are peptides. And nobody even thinks about this. So this is beyond vitamins and minerals. These small amino acid containing molecules, technically less than 50 amino acids. And a lot of these, we don't even know what they do in the human body. But people who are in this biohacking sphere will have heard of things like LL37 or BPC157. All these things have these esoteric names, right? Or ipamorelin or tesamorelin. And these are all peptides that people are using to biohack. Well, a lot of these peptides uh, are found in organ meats and they're found throughout the body. In heart muscle, there's a peptide called dwarf, uh, D-W-O-R-F, which is associated with contractility. And I think that if we um, don't overcook the organs or we get them from a desiccated source, a lot of these peptides are preserved. So in the stomach lining, there's BPC-157. In the liver, there's a peptide called LEAP2, which is associated with the immune response and bone marrow, LL37, which is also associated with the immune response. So I think that in the next 10 to 20 years, if nutrition does its due diligence, we'll start to realize, oh my gosh, there are all of these peptides and signaling molecules in meat and organs that we didn't even know about, yet another reason that animal foods are meant to be the center of the human diet. So that was a soapbox. We can go into any of that more that you'd like, but the organs are just so nutritious. Yeah, I think the key thing is, Paul, that's super to list them all out and they're ringing a lot of bells because like yourself, you got interested in because people often don't have a huge test, taste for organ meats and you have to be relatively skilled in preparing them to make them tasty. You can't just throw them in the pan like a ribeye usually or you get a leathery outcome. Uh, so you got interested uh, as I did in, in potential supplements. And as a disclosure, I'll mention too, I have a good buddy now, Warren Matthews, who runs Extend Life Manufacturing in New Zealand. And a year and a half ago, he found me because he had a heart calcification problem, a big one, had to get a heart valve. And then in his research to say, hey, how did I get calcified? He discovered me and insulin resistance and all the stuff we're familiar with. So he came over to Ireland and then I went over to New Zealand. And one of the things we got together on was exactly that, to take the incredible nutrient density of organ meats and true, as you mentioned, freeze drying process and keeping all the goodies, uh, get them into a form that's more easy for people to access, you know. So it's a great idea. But absolutely, those polypeptides and peptides, I was amazed when I was researching them eight or 12 months ago at the sheer list and the length of the list of all these. And they've quantified the amounts. But like you say, they haven't done a whole lot of work on understanding their role. But because they're clearly... Uh, mechanistically engaged in the function of the machine, right? And they do get taken in completely. Um, they know they're important. They just probably haven't seen a commercial uh, or drug use yet. So they're not really bothering to go after them. And they're, they're in all the organs. I mean, you can look in spleen, mm. splenin, splenopentin, tuftsin. Like I said, you can look in the intestines. Uh, you can look in the testicles, you can look in all these organs and the peptides are there. So when I think that, I think, wow, I want to eat as much of the animal as possible. But 
I can't always get a pancreas or a spleen. I mean, you can get it increasingly, but, or I don't always, you know, people don't always want to eat a spleen. I've gotten pretty good with spleen, but that's why I think that the desiccated organs are amazing and putting them in capsules could really help people long-term. And ultimately we just want people to get more organs in their diet and eat nose to tail and not be afraid of animal foods. However they do it is the, is awesome. And if, if this is a thing that helps them, that's fantastic. Or if they can get fresh organs, that's amazing too. Yeah. And when I think of the, um, these extra things that are not fully researched, I obviously, I've been very careful with certain topics like vitamin K2, MK7, a lot of mechanistic data, a lot of associational data, but I'm careful a little pushing it too powerfully because there's technically no RCTs. So I'm very conscious of that. But I do at the same time love stuff that fits and makes sense. I'll give an example. Many years ago, I did a vitamin D le lecture, a big one, it was very popular. And I went to the work of so many professors. One of them was Professor Hollick, who's kind of the grandfather. And I remember from one of his papers, he noted that the sun's action on our skin yeah, it makes vitamin D, which is really important, but it also makes nitric oxide, which we know gives you vasodilation, arterial health. But he also mentioned a series of other photoproducts, complex chemicals, and he actually ruefully noted that, you know, these, these systems have been created in evolution, that the machine makes them when it gets sunlight. They're clearly important, but no one's interested in researching them. So we don't actually know what they're all for. It's, it's analogous to the organ meats and all the peptides. You just know they're important at some level. It just may be a long time before they're fully decoded. But in the meantime, you can make sure you get them in an ancestral diet. And you're covered. Until the science comes home, we're covered. I love that so much, Ivor, because you're 100% right. And I've thought the same thing with vitamin D. And in the midst of this COVID pandemic, you know, everyone is talking about the importance of getting your vitamin D level above 30 nanograms per ml. And most people are just taking a supplement. And I'm thinking, okay, better than nothing, but all of the compounds that are made in human skin when we're exposed to ultraviolet light are completely analogous to these unique peptides that are just kind of hiding in these animal foods that we don't even know about. And anyone who's been in the sun, which hopefully every single person listening to this uh, will have been knows that the sun feels good on your skin. There's something about that. And it's not, it's not rocket science. I mean, it's not even conjecture. We know that also endorphins are made in the human skin when we're in the sun. That's an evolutionary mechanism to say, Hey, go in the sun, dummy. <laughs> you know, if the sun were bad for humans, we'd go in the sun and be like, I doesn't feel good. I don't want to do it. But similarly, I mean, when people take um, organs, when they eat organs, desiccated organ supplements or whatever, they often feel like I feel good. And you've experienced this. You eat a steak and you're like, damn, that was good. And when I used to be a vegan, I would eat kale and go, damn, I have to fart. Um, that's about, you know. <laughs> and so you go in the sun, there are all of these nutrients that are made in the skin that are beyond cholecalciferol, which is the precursor to 25-hydroxy vitamin D, which is what we me measure, which is a precursor to 125-hydroxy vitamin D, which is the active form of vitamin D. But we're talking about cholecalciferol sulfate, nitric oxide. And, you know, I've done a podcast with Malcolm Kendrick in which we talked about the importance of nitric oxide at the level of the endothelium. And I think there are a few things more important 
the nitric oxide at the level of the endothelium. And we know that the pleiotropic mechanism of statins probably has to do with nitric oxide. Things that decrease nitric oxide in the endothelium seem to create more atherosclerosis. Things that increase nitric oxide seem to be beneficial. This is a completely uh, LDL independent mechanism. So do you wanna make more nitric oxide in ultraviolet light? Yeah, do you wanna just sit inside all day with fears of skin cancer and, and just take a vitamin D supplement? I would say no. And that gets you a whole nother rabbit hole about skin cancers. And I'm not a dermatologist, but that doesn't mean that I can't comment on this. Uh, as someone who's interested in how this is all connected, you know, anecdotally, whenever I post online about these anecdotal stories of people who have less burning from the sun when they go to an animal-based diet and cut out the seed oils, you get hundreds, if not thousands of voices chiming in and saying, me too. Now that's so cool that I just gotta, I have to hypothesize that a lot of skin cancer risk, whether it's squamous, basal, or melanoma, which is not an entirely sun-related cancer, are potentially worsened, exacerbated by seed oils, excess seed oil consumption in our skin. So it really connects everything. And the thing I wanted to say before I slide off the soapbox is that you mentioned vitamin K2, and that was one nutrient that I left out from liver. So important. And people will say, because I'll often make the claim as I did on Rogan, there are tons of nutrients that you can get in animal foods that you can't get in plant foods. And that's something important to really emphasize here. I see a real discordance. I see a real inequality favoring animal foods because of the number of nutrients that are only found in animal foods in any appreciable quantity. Many of the ones I mentioned earlier, riboflavin, choline, et cetera, but also vitamin K2. And when I say K2, people will come back and say, wait, you can get vitamin K2 in natto. But what I'll say to them in response is, but you can't get the full spectrum MK4 to MK11. And I'm sure there are more menaquinones that we will discover in animal foods. As you said, it's mostly MK7, I believe, that's in natto and the plant foods. But you're not gonna get MK4 and you're not gonna get MK5 or six or eight or nine. And so a full spectrum of menaquinones only found in animal foods. But get in the sun, get real vitamin D, you've got to. There's, there's, there's all these compounds we don't even know about. And I love that you wrapped it back in. It's like, man, you mean it's just as simple as living like my ancestors did for the last 2 million years? Yeah, it's just that simple, right? It is that simple, but, and you got to make sure you don't do what they didn't do, which is as important. So no seed oils, sugars, refined grains, refined carbohydrates. Uh, you take that stuff out and start adding in all of what we've talked about. It's enormous. It's synergistic. And people won't believe how much better they feel as well, because most people go and change their diet and lifestyle to lose weight, look better. But they don't realize, yeah, yeah, you'll get that. But you'll also feel massively better you'll sleep better you'll be able to deal with stress better mental acuity will rise especially with fasting which is kind of a supercharger but can you imagine you suddenly get more sun because you realize the science on skin cancer was very biased so you get more sun you get the nitric oxide you get the vitamin d you get all the other photo products you also cut out all the bad foods so you're taking away all that damage to your machine you add in organ meats and meats and fatty meats and connective tissue and maybe bone broth, you know, and marrow, all this stuff. And you just do it all together and you start fasting, which 
this animal-based low-carb diet will make you much more of a fat burner within a matter of days and weeks. So you'll be able to skip meals like our ancestors, right? And you do it all together. It's just a complete transformation. I mean, you, you could never buy it. It's just enormous. But people don't know it because society, to the point we had earlier, all the boffins and professors and the nutritionists are actually directing people in the opposite direction for several decades. So no one even believes anymore you can change your diet and lifestyle and it's going to transform you because change of diet to help you has been discredited by all of the bodies who have given people the wrong diets and of course they didn't work. So they've discredited fixing your diet. Can you imagine? It's outrageous. I do think it's funny that amidst COVID and all of this, and even amidst mainstream Western medicine, the party line from physicians is diet has no influence on XYZ. Diet has no influence on COVID. Diet has no influence on Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. Diet has no influence on eczema, psoriasis, Sjogren's, Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And I just think you guys are making a mockery of this because I can show you tens, if not hundreds of cases for every single one of those diseases where diet made a huge improvement. And, and, and with animal-based diets and carnivore diets, like we're talking about, ideally nose to tail, in many cases, I can't tell you, Ivor, one of my greatest sadnesses over the last year has been that people, these conferences are not happening anymore. But when I was at Paleo FX and KetoCon last year, people would come up to me left and right uh, and say, my ulcerative colitis completely reversed on a carnivore diet or an animal-based diet. Or, and I have clients, my eczema, my head-to-toe eczema went away. My psoriasis is completely better. And then in this next sentence, they'll always say kind of the, the Koch's postulate kind of thing, like, but you know, I cheat sometimes and it comes back. And I'm like, well, oh my gosh, you know, like, uh, what are we doing? And, and the, the COVID is the most relevant discussion now. And, and isn't it ironic that, that maybe Western medicine just says diet doesn't work because they've been recommending the wrong diet all along. And that, yeah, you know what? You, a dietary change may not help your outcome with COVID when Western medicine uh, is recommending canola oil and corn oil and 60% of your calories from carbohydrates. No wonder diet doesn't work to help your Crohn's. Like, cause you know, if you go to a doctor, we'll say, well, what's the best diet I can eat doc? And every doc's gonna give you a little bit different perspective, but they'd probably say, my guess would be whole grains, polyunsaturated fatty acids, small amounts of meat. They would never say organ meats. And we both know that though that's well-intentioned and these doctors are intelligent and I believe their heart is in the right place, I think they're incredibly misled. And they're recommending the complete opposite of what people should be doing. 60% of your diet from carbohydrates? Are you crazy? How do you get any calories that are nutrient rich from, from anim, animal meats or organ foods? Yeah. And you're recommending seed oils because you've, you're LDL myopic. And you think, well, I mean, if you eat more canola oil, it's going to lower your LDL. And we absolutely know that's the right thing. So it's just, I love that idea. Like maybe the reason they don't think diet works is because they've been recommending a non-evolutionary ancestral diet the whole time. And that's going to do the opposite. Yeah. And I've seen it in engineering as well in complex problem solving, where you come upon a group that is having difficulties, long-term difficulties. You go in and discover they've fundamentally been going with the wrong variables. And as a result, they've lost faith 
in their adjustment of certain variables because it doesn't work consistently but you find out they're completely in the wrong place and that's what we've seen and you know i might i might throw down at the bottom of the pod uh, links to the three-part series blog post by dr michael eads mike uh so smart and he wrote them so long ago there's three parts on are we meat eaters or vegetarians and he covers organ meats too and their power um and it covers the whole topic so every time i get in a bun fight online now you know I just send those three links together and say, when you've read these, come back to me. And they don't really come back because Mike's a giant in the logic, the science, the chemistry. He goes through the nitrogen and the carbon dating and and nitrogen levels, which show how high a level carnivore you are. Humans are right up the top. And I mean, it's all there. And he also went through another fantastic post and you mentioned it, copper and zinc balance. And again, it's years ago, and I only discovered it much more recently. And I always send that to people for the copper zinc discussion. So, you know, this knowledge was out there even decades ago, but it was in the fringe, if you will. It was people like Eads or Rosedale or, you know, these these giants of research. Um, But it's great to see now, Paul, that it is getting out much wider. I mean, in fairness, compared to 20 years ago, there's an enormous counter movement that is scientific. The low carb, the carnivore, the keto, all punching hard with science against this edifice of stuffed shirts and industry cronies trying to keep this failed paradigm alive. That's the way I look at it. And you know what I, this came up when I was on the podcast with Joe. Whenever I hear someone talking about polyunsaturated fats or high carb diets or plant-based diets, I always go and find their picture. And some of them look great, but many of them don't look so good. They wouldn't look good on a beach. I mean, this is my, this is my metric. If I'm walking along a beach, you know, as a man or a woman, and, and one of these people is sitting there with their shirt off, or, you know, in a bikini or a bathing suit, am I going to turn my head and look at them? Or am I going to be like, well, man, they, they need to go to the, you know, like maybe you shouldn't be in that speedo or bikini. And, you know, this came up on Rogan. So many of the people in these fields, they don't even look healthy. And it's like, what are you even, either you're not eating the diet that you promote. If the diet that you promote is so healthy or the diet you promote makes you look like um, someone that's not ancestrally healthy or able to hunt an animal or able to do any of those things. So I, I think that's a great high level metric. And, you know, I'm not fat shaming, but at some level, like I'm also not afraid to do it because um, if you don't embody, if we don't embody the life that we are promoting, then what's the validity there? You know, and people can think of these. And, you know, the last time I talked about this, I got called out for fat shaming and I just, I don't care. Like, look, let's just call a spade a spade. And, and you guys can go look at the plant-based advocates or these omnivores who are recommending, you know, high amounts of carbohydrates or polyunsaturated fatty acids. And, and you tell me if the people at the highest level in the medical community actually look like they're, they're healthy and tan and look like, you know, they could, they could go hunt an animal or, uh, you know, defend their family against a, a warthog. So that's the, I like that. But, and you mentioned a couple of these studies, so I'll just show them so people can find them if they want. These stable isotope studies that Mike Eads has uh, talked about. Uh, and you can see the, in them, they do have, um, you know, uh, graphics looking at uh, carbon. And this is, uh, I believe, a, um, 
I think that S is a strontium isotope. Oh, it's a sulfur isotope. And you can see where humans end up and we end up pretty high around known carnivores. And then another one uh, you can see here, these are pretty common with um, these uh, similar ideas with isotopic data from carnivores and Neanderthals and modern humans delta uh, D13C, D15 uh, nitrogen. Mm. I talk about this in my book as well. So that, yeah, the data is really there that, hey, throughout human history, whether it's millions of years ago or 60,000 years ago, we've been eating, you know, like in my opinion, this kind of a diet. And this is a graphic we put up on our social media the other day, but this animal-based diet, you know, like, yeah, don't do seed oils, processed sugars. And, you know, this is kind of my jam, the nuts, seeds, leaves, and stems are toxic, grains, legumes, alcohol. I think this is the way humans have eaten. And definitely there is grass-fed organs on there, you know, organs. Grass-fed organs. Apparently, for sure. Absolutely. And, you know, I know we're coming, we have to, we have a, a time limit here. We're coming to a close. But uh, funny enough, two nights ago, I was with, I'm working with a group of doctors and surgeons um, and some other kind of, pretty heavy hitting people on this whole viral issue. We're trying to counter some of the bad science the governments are following, maybe in their ignorance around efficacy of lockdowns, which seems to be their only tool. Um, and I was with one of the doctors for dinner with my wife and, and his wife, we had a great night, but my wife actually got lamb livers that day and made pate. And I must say it was really good. It was a new recipe, I think put thyme in it, the, the herb, and there was some other constituents but put them in um, ramekins, you know, those little flat dishes, earthenware, and put a layer of clarified butter on top, like you get in the restaurants. So we each got a ramekin with quite a lot of pate. And we were just in the middle of eating this liver pate. And I made the comment that, you know, we got a big meal coming because the doctor's wife had, had done two huge racks of lamb. So it was pretty carnivore night. But I was saying we might want to be careful now because if you eat all this nutrient-dense, protein-dense organ meat because it was pretty big tray, might might spoil your appetite for all this lamb. But we ended up all finishing the stuff because it really was delicious. And I'm not a major liver fan, to be honest. But uh, yeah, that's, that's the kind of thing. Either have the organs go out of your way. I'm not sure in America, actually, for people in certain areas, will they have a lot of access to quality organ meats? Is, is there availability? There are some farms uh, in the U.S. Um, that, that are increasing, but they're scarce. I mean, it's hard. And, you know, you go to Whole Foods or something here in the U.S., and you can't just walk up to the counter and get spleen or heart. Maybe if you're lucky, you can find a Whole Foods that has liver on Tuesdays twice a month in December. But it's pretty rare. And, you know, that's why farms like White Oak or Balcampo are, are doing great things by providing liver. But I mean, you know, these meat delivery services don't deliver liver. And so uh, maybe that's what I should do. And, you know, and I, I, I love doing the desiccated organs, but maybe I should start an organ meat delivery service, but they're, they're hard to get and, and they're not always available for people. So it's tricky. Yeah, and you have the challenge as well. They they require certain skill in cooking to make them appetizing, and some people instinctively don't. So the supplements is the great kind of the modern convenience way of getting all those peptides, all those nutrients perfectly preserved as if you're eating a few ounces of the real thing and so simple. But in Ireland, we're luckier in that a lot of butchers and even supermarkets that have meat departments 
it's not that uncommon to at least get liver but i don't see kidneys anymore i don't see anything else it's really just liver you'll get you won't see the other organs yeah i totally agree with you i think that, that the organs are hard to find i mean some people are hunting and they can get organs um, or you can maybe find them at grocery stores or these farms are doing good work in the regenerative space. But I definitely think the desiccated organs serve that role for a lot of people. But anything else we should cover before we wrap up? I'm glad we could really dig into the meeting cancer thing a little bit on this one because people ask that question so often. I get asked about new 5GC and TMAO and it's all so silly and the mechanistic stuff. And I'm glad we covered all that stuff. Uh, anything else you want to talk about? No, I think that's great, Paul. I think it's, it's a nice package covering everything around meat and organ meats, pretty much all you need to know. And I love the fact that great minds think alike, not just on the topic, but that you recognized, you know, it would be a really good thing to bring organ meats to the masses uh, through the freeze-dried products. And I happen to also think up the same thing because my buddy Warren was involved mainly in nutraceuticals for heart issues and for myriad other, other things, but it had never occurred to him to bring organ meats to the masses. And in fact, he was a little kind of not sure at first, and he was wondering about it, and he said, oh, do you really think so? And then I showed him that there are multiple different products available, and I showed him that you can get all the goodness transferred into the product without losing anything. Um, and then he warmed to the idea and then he got really warm. So it was, it was great. So no, I think we covered everything and we've got to swing back again on the viral issue though, uh, maybe in a while. We should, we should. And I'll tell you, you know, over here at Hardened Soil, we get emails and reviews from people every day that are just so moving from people that are improving their lives with just, just a capsule of organs. And we hope that it's in the context of dietary change and lifestyle change and getting out in sun like our ancestors. But it's so cool that you can give someone a capsule and see just a little bit of an improvement. And then they, it sparks a, a change. And sometimes it's a big improvement. They really feel the difference because these organs are so uniquely nutrient rich. So get your organs, guys, however you can do it. And I'm so excited that you're going to be spreading that to more people because that's ultimately what it's all about. I think the more people that get healthy, this is how we change the world with an animal-based diet. So that's amazing. Go animal-based diets. Thanks a lot, Paul. Till next time. Awesome. I love it, Ivor. Hey, guys and gals. Hope you enjoyed that discussion with Paul Saladino, MD. And now I'm going to tell you a brief New Zealand story. So I'd never been there until November of last year, and it's an incredible country. It's also a country where they have the best grass-fed sheep in the world. And those sheep also have highly nutrient-dense organ meats, right? So the reason I was in New Zealand is because of my new buddy, Warren Matthews, who contacted me last October, and he wanted to know how he could better design and produce products that would help people with prevention of calcification and heart disease. So he actually wanted to come over all the way to Ireland, that's 36 hours, three flights, to meet with me. And I said, well, okay then, but no promises. And he arrived and we spent several days in meetings, discussions, meeting of minds and also went out for a couple of great meals with my family. So long story short, he wanted me to come over and see his place in New Zealand. So I went over and met with him and his wife and I got to tour his purpose-built facility that he built 10 years ago. 
He's the owner and CEO of a nutraceutical manufacturing plant. Because I spent six years in FDA-regulated medical device manufacture and another 20 in high-volume products, I was fascinated to go through all of his processes and check them out. So they have state-of-the-art clean rooms. They're fully regulated FDA and all the other bodies. All throughout, spick and span, modern equipment, perfect facilities for high-quality manufacture. I, of course, visited with the QA or Quality Assurance Department. That's kind of something close to my heart with my manufacturing background. It's just a key part of the process. Everything double weighed, double counted, double checked all the way through. So a really tight ship. They also have some of the best equipment that's available, like 3D blending, robotic and computer controlled, and they have, of course, processes for encapsulation and micro-encapsulation to protect the product so they actually reach their target rather than being degraded by stomach acids, etc. So everything covered. And finally, the shipping department, vertically integrated, ships to 40 countries, as I said. Orders come in and in less than a day, they're gone out by FedEx or whatever service and they're straight to their destination. But let's get back to where we started the story. So I indeed gave Warren a lot of advice on various aspects of products best for heart disease, but I also gave him an idea. I said organ meats are a passion of mine. I eat them, my family eats them. The kids aren't so fantastic, to be honest. But what if he could produce a supplement made directly from the best organ meats in the world, i.e. New Zealand sheep? organs. He's in Christchurch in New Zealand, right in the middle of sheep country, and there were multiple suppliers. The best was procured, and he went through all the development process to get the perfect organ meat supplement produced. So it took many months, and now it's actually available, and of course, I can give you guys a discount. Warren suggested it was only fair, after I was the inspiration, that I could extend to my followers a 15% off offer. And you can see the code there, IVER15, and the link to the website will be in the description below. And this will help me keep things going here. It'll support me in a small way, but primarily give you that discount. And you'll see on the website that there's a further 10% off if you join the program. Uh, so that's pretty major reduction in cost to try out this great new product. So I don't generally promote products, as you well know, but in this case, the personal relationship and the hand I had in developing it, and also my complete confidence in the ultra-high quality of this enables me to do this for you guys. Please share and make people aware that the best product in the organ meat world is now available. It ships all over the world. You know you're getting the best possible alternative to finding those organ meats and cooking them yourselves. By all means, if you can, it is ideal to make these part of your daily diet. But for a lot of people, as we explained, that won't be practical or they won't really sustain the habit. And therefore, this is a perfect product for those people. Great help if you can share this, give people the opportunity to take advantage of this, or indeed, whatever you feel. Thank you.